Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Please accept our apologies for the very low quality of this recording. So far, we have already seen how the Apostle Paul has been basically layering praise upon praise upon praise upon praise to the Godhead. Praise for all that they have done in the past, praise for all that they are doing in the present, and praise for all that they will do in the future. As we have considered so far, the section... um, verses 3 to 14, it opens with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So, the section which we are considering, it starts with praise, and it's God the Father basically giving us the Holy Spirit to enable us, to enable us to enjoy these spiritual blessings. And as we would consider today, the, the praises, Paul's praises, he's just breaking out in praise. It climaxes and ends with the focus being on the Holy Spirit of God again. Now, in considering this, you know, the focus... You know, we, we've looked at the past elements and it, the focus was very much on God the Father. Then we looked at the present elements and it's very much on God the Son. And now this future element is focusing on the Holy Spirit. And, you know, whenever we, we approach the Scriptures, the Spirit of God is, is easily overlooked. His ministry is easily overlooked. Um, and... In so many ways, this is very, very characteristic of, you know, and consistent with his nature and his character. Um, Perhaps the account of creation in Genesis, and we speak that in the beginning, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, and he says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. We can kind of like just move on from that, and we start thinking about how God spoke things into existence, you know. But it's the Spirit of God there, sort of like hovering over the face of the deep, sort of like waiting for the Father to speak that word, and then he, he puts things into action. And in our minds, our focus comes off the Spirit of God, and it goes on to the Father. We kind of like do that in our minds. And often when we look through the Scriptures, we kind of like overlook the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, just in, in considering this, just a, a small consideration. You know, I'm just thinking that the Spirit of God is very much the unsung hero. You know, he's not the one we, you know, when we pray, you know, sometimes we pray in the Spirit, but I'm trying to continue to try. But we, we speak Father, we speak Jesus. We don't never really say Spirit of God, da 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 da. You know, and so, but the Spirit of God the unsung 
hero is so, so important. So important. And in considering this, I was just thinking, you know, it's like he goes about his ministry quietly. And I was just thinking that there's so many people amongst us within the body who, who share that same characteristic. They, they go about their ministry quietly. There's no song or dance. Nobody necessarily sees what they do, but the, the function, the way they, they function within the body is just, you know, so necessary. You know, we take them for granted. You know, oftentimes we may just think that all this just happens. It just appears on a Sunday. That teas and coffees just appear. And they don't. It's because people have given of themselves to, to actually do things which we don't see, but we enjoy it. And this is very much, again, the, the, the nature and the character of the Holy Spirit. You don't necessarily see what he does, but we enjoy what he does. We enjoy the benefits. And, you know, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit of God, you know, in John 16, he says something very, very interesting. He says, in John 16, verse 13, he says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take up what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So we see a characteristic of the Holy Spirit that he basically just loves to big up Jesus. He's not looking for the glory himself. He's not there thinking, oh, look what I've done. Look at, you know what? The Father spoke it, but I spung it into existence. He's not there doing that. And it's a beautiful characteristic because many times, you know, it's just an, our nature. We want to be appreciated for the things we do. If we do something good or we've done something, we want people to give us a little pat on the back and say, oh, well done. I, mean, I saw what you did there and it's really, really good. We love to be appreciated. And, you know, if that perhaps is you, that you're doing things which nobody else sees, and you don't think you're, you're being appreciated, then, you know, notice. The Father sees. The Father knows your labor of love, and he sees, he recognizes it. And those things which you do in secret, if he chooses, by his sovereign will, he will reward you Openly. But if he doesn't, carry on doing what you're doing. Carry on doing those things which you know are pleasing before the Lord. And so, be encouraged. So, moving on. As I said, Paul, the Apostle Paul is, is right in this section. He's overwhelmed. He's, he's breaking out. He's just heaping praise upon praise to God and now he has the Holy Spirit in view from verse 4 we looked back and we considered as I said before God's eternal purpose and how he chose us from the foundation of the world to be adopted as his people 
Then we considered the method that the father used to make his plan turn into this present reality. And the method he chose and he still uses today is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God the father redeemed us back to himself and set us free from bondage. And we see that in verses 6 to 8. And last week we considered a few Old Testament patterns just to try and get the, the picture in our minds of it go and the, the blood before the altar. And so today, briefly, um, we're going to try and understand why God will do this. Um, the why. Why God chose us. Why God adopted us. Why God forgave us. Why he redeemed us back to himself. I mean, it doesn't even make sense as I'm saying it. Why would you do that? And the text, in a way, gives the answer. It does give the answer. It may not be the answer you want to hear, but it gives the answer. It, you know, three times the Apostle Paul within this portion says that it's basically to do everything with God and nothing to do with us. In verse 5 he says, you know, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In verse 9 it says, having made known to us the, ministry, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And in verse 11 it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But more than this, the Apostle Paul goes on to state that God is working towards something. You know, God is using this thing called time and the consummation of time to bring all things back under subjection to himself and he's doing this through Christ. And somewhere along the line, in his mind, by the counsel of his own will, he decided to use the church to fulfill his purpose. He, de he decided to use you and he decided to use me. And that is something that we don't necessarily always quite comprehend. He's going to bring all things back to un under subjection to himself. All things in the natural realm, all things in the spiritual realm will be brought under the subjection and the authority of Jesus Christ. As it says in verse 10, that in the dis dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things, not some things, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on the earth, in him. So, again, we see that by an act of his grace, the Father has allowed us to be part of his eternal plan. So, after saying that, let's consider verses 11 to 14, which says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of, his, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the pur purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen? So, verse 11, the focus is still on Jesus. Because, as we mentioned in um, Christianity Explored this, this morning, it's only in Christ Jesus that we can obtain this. The question which was asked this morning is, who do you say Jesus is? If you believe Jesus is the Christ, and you live your life accordingly, then you have access to the Father. Anything else, any other belief system, no access to the Father. It's only in Christ that we can have these spiritual blessings. It's only in Christ that we can obtain this inheritance. Try and look anywhere else. Philosophies, any other spirituality, materialism, you won't find it. It's only found in Christ. It's only, only in Christ that we can in, enjoy these benefits of knowing and finding our wealth, that, our worth, that we've been chosen by God. We've been adopted by the Father into his family. We've been forgiven and redeemed of our sins. We've been given wisdom and knowledge to understand spiritual things. It's only in Christ that we can find these things. And so, it says that we, God's people, as well as all of these benefits... He says that we have obtained an inheritance. And, you know, in my mind, when I think of inheritance, it's always about something when somebody dies and then you get, you know, what they left over for you. And if they were wise in their life, then they leave a lot. And if they wasn't so wise, they wasn't so fortunate in their life, they don't leave much. And, but Christ has died and he's left us an inheritance. And this inheritance is big. This inheritance is something which you, you can't necessarily comprehend with your, with your natural reasoning. But we have this inheritance. And that what Paul says, says here, he says it in the past tense. We have obtained an inheritance. And again, you know, as we've been considering through our, our study in, in, in the letter to the Ephesians, you know, there's positional truths and then there's experiential truths positionally we have an inheritance God has given us all things but you may not be experiencing those things in your own personal lives it doesn't mean that the position is wrong and it's fake it's still a reality and in so many ways it's a matter of trying to match and balance our experiences with our position. It doesn't always quite work, but it's a matter of trying to get the right balance there. And that's why, you know, Paul will go on to say, Do you know what? now you know these things, go on and walk it out. Go and work it out. Go and live it. You know these truths. Work them out in your lives. 
Now, it says that we have obtained an inheritance. And in the original Greek, you know, the way the text is structured within the original Greek, I'm not going to go too deep in the original Greek because I don't understand it too much anyway. But in the original Greek, the tense is, is passive. It's structured in a passive form. And this can be seen in two ways. And funny enough, both ways are correct. Both ways are right. But in the first form, we could read it, and it says, and the American Standard Version, if you read that version, quite puts it this way. It could be read, in him we were made a heritage, or made an inheritance. And this implies that we are Christ's inheritance. And Christ has inherited us. And when you think of it, if you really meditate on that, again, it just doesn't make sense in your head. Why would Christ want to inherit us? We get a good deal. Lord, I don't think you get such a good deal here. But it's the truth. And grammatically and linguistically, this is true. Um, in Deuteronomy 32, chapter 32 and verse 9, it says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. In Psalm 33 and verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. So we have that picture there that Israel, and now coming through the cross of the church as well, we are the Lord's inheritance. Jesus also alludes to this in John chapter 6 and verse 37. says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So Jesus gets us. It's like he inherits, inherits us. So we are the gift from the Father to the Son. Christ inherited us, the church, as a reward for his faithfulness. And, you know, as I consider that, that just blows my mind. Because, again, with my finite mind, I just can't understand why he would want to do that. Or, the text can be seen and read in this way, as the New King James Version states. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, which means that we as believers have inherited Christ. You see the, the difference? He inherits us, but we inherit him. And, as I said, both lines, both lines of reasoning, both lines of, of looking at it are true. And the conclusion I've come to is, either way, we get a good deal. Either way, we're in a good position. Whether Christ has inherited us or whether we've inherited Christ, we're in a good place. And that's, and that's the confidence and the comfort I take from so, we have obtained an inheritance. And again, you know, this language of being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And again, you know, 
being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. It's like, again, why, Lord? I know I'm really hitting this now, but why? You know, Paul, as I said before, he looked back into eternity past, and I'm going to do it again, but eternity doesn't have a past, so we can't even comprehend eternity because eternity is. But somewhere in eternity, however we can structure it in our mind, God purposed us for his own purposes, for his own will, to do as he chooses. And it's out of the abundance and overflow of his love, out of the abundance and overflow of his grace. And again, I'm just going to echo the psalmist. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You know, it's, it's too high. I can't attain it. So, you know, if you want to gather in a corner and start talking about how and the why and, and putting God in a box, you're welcome to. I just accept the text for what it says and say yes and amen. Thank you, Lord. I know that the God I serve has chosen me. I have my worth in him. I have my identity in him. I have my confidence and my trust in him. Because I know that what he has said, he is able to perform it. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 12, it says that the Lord watches over his word in order to perform it. And again, you may be looking at your life right now and all the mistakes you've made and thinking, how's he going to perform anything in me? With my off-key faults, with my off-key actions. Now, how's he going to work that out in me? But he watches over his word to perform it. And this is the sense we get here in this, in this verse from the word works. We get the assurance from, from this word because in the original Greek, this is the word which it means it is energio. And it's where we get our word energetic or energize. So, keeping it in the context of what Paul is saying here and how he's breaking out. You know, he's excited because he's looking at this and he's saying, you know what? God is going to energize what he has started in you. He's going to perform it. He's going to make it work. Because whatever God purposes to do, he gives it energy. Think about it. He, he, he spoke the, word into, the world into existence, the universe. And as far as I know, it's still functioning. The universe, the planets, they're still functioning. It's still going. He makes it, he energizes it, he performs it. And just so, know that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He's faithful, even, even if you feel like you're in a low place right now, he is faithful to work out what he has started. 
he is the author and the finisher of your faith. That means that if he's the author and the finisher, everything else in between, he's got it on lock. He has it in control. Now you're living it and you're experiencing it and you're thinking, I don't know how you got this in control, but he's like, you know what, I've got this in control. Just think about Job. Job probably thought, oh my goodness, everything has gone to pot. But God had it in control. He had everything in control. So, just know that you are where you are, not by chance. But because the Lord has allowed you to experience these things. To bring you unto himself. So you can live right for him. Amen? And so, he energizes he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we, verse 12, who first trusted, first applied faith in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now again, if you can remember from the first, first study, the we here refers back to Paul making a distinction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And the we here, as I said, are the Jewish converts who first came to saving faith in Christ Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, it wasn't Gentiles coming to saving faith. It was Jews. Jews who had come to Jerusalem to, to celebrate a feast. And they were the first ones to come to saving grace. And, you know, Paul is purposely, because Paul is so clever... He is purposely making this distinction here because of what he is going to go on to say. And so he's highlighting the we here and, and in so many ways for those Jewish converts he's, he's given them an opportunity to share in his praise. You know, because it was the Jews who were given the oracles of God. It was the Jews who should have had the ministry of presenting the almighty God to the whole world. Now, they didn't do a fantastic job, but they still were given the oracles. And so, knowing that God has chosen them, you know, they should have been breaking out. Just as Paul, as they were hearing, you know, this letter being read, they should be, wow, yeah, we're part of God's plan and God's chosen us. That's how they should have been. And that's how we should be. As we read the text here, you know, it should all be to the praise of his glory. Now, before we go any further, you know, I'm just impressed to have this quick mention about to the praise of his glory. And as the Apostle Paul wrote this, you know, he was writing this from two perspectives. Firstly, from God's perspective, because, as I said before, salvation is always presented from God's side, so that he will always get the glory. And the reality is, if salvation is only 95% God and 5% us, then we've got something to glory in. But 
salvation is always presented from God's side because it's 100% God. So that he gets all the glory. And so I say that and you might say, well, what's wrong with this God that he's always looking for this glory? What's wrong with him? He's always looking, it's like, I want to be glorified. I want this glory. What is this thing called glory? I mean, we use it. We, we chuck it about as believers. But what is glory? What does it mean? And again, I challenge you. Because I believe that with our finite minds, we cannot, we cannot in closely comprehend what glory really means. I don't believe we can. Because being sinful beings, you know, we just can't understand it. We can get a glimpse of it. But glory is something which, you know, a pure and holy and righteous God has every right to receive from us. Why, why, do you want to be, why do you want to be glorified, Lord? Because I've got every right to be. So what is it about this glory you need? Well, if you under, really understood what glory was, you would understand why you need to give me my glory. You see, when we look at holiness or we look at glory, we can only picture it from a tainted point of view. Challenge. If I said to you, all of you, think of nothing. Just think of nothing. Do it now. Close your eyes. Think of nothing. You're looking at blackness now, aren't you? But blackness is something, isn't it? It's a cons glory is something we just don't understand. And so, how do we understand why God would say, I want my glory? We don't ever understand what he's really talking about. But we get glimpses of it. And so, I don't think God's sort of like, you know, just up there in heaven thinking, yeah, I want my glory because I just want to be picked up and I want to be, you know. No. It's deeper than that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, you know, the Apostle Paul, referring back to the, the prophet Isaiah, he says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What does that mean? We say it. It sounds good. It's beautiful. It's poetic. What does it mean? It means eye and ear, your natural senses, you can't comprehend it what God has prepared for you. It hasn't entered into your heart, so it's not something which externally can, you can receive, and it's, some, it's not something you internally can conjure up. You can't comprehend it. You've got, you got nothing to match it against. So, so how do you do it? How do you do it? You just, <laughs> you just accept it. Lord, you've got some stuff prepared for me. I don't even know what it is, but it's all good because you said it's good. It's deep. But you know what? The next verse in 1 Corinthians, verse 10 says, But God, and I love but God's but God's. But God has revealed them to us. Through who? Through his spirit. For the Spirit 
searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. People, we have the Spirit of God within us. God has given us His Spirit. God has given us the ability. I don't know how. I don't know how to work it out. But He's given us the ability to know these deep things. Because it's the Spirit of God who who searches the deep things of God and reveals them to you. And you know what? Within your Christian walk, you know, we can have this approach to our Christian walk where it's just a casual walk. You know, it's a casual just, you know, I love Jesus, he loves me, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Or we can go a little bit deeper, a little bit more committed and saying, Lord, I want to lay hold of that which you have laid hold of me for. And you start digging a bit deeper. And then you can go deeper and deep. Who can know the, the height and the depths and the widths and the breadth? It's unsearchable. You can never get to a point where you can look at the scriptures and say, I know everything that is to know about that word. You can't get there. Because God is deep. But in order to understand it, you need the Spirit of God. And that's who Paul is focusing on it. The Spirit of God. Now, I'm not talking about the Spirit of God in some kind of way. Now, that's for the old cats. What was that called again? The Twilight Zone. Sister Tracy. That's for the old cats. Well, if you don't know what the Twilight Zone was all about, then um, I can't remember. They used to have all these little scenarios where he used to take people into some other dimensions and bring these scenarios. It was fantastic. I miss it. But anyway, back to the point. The Spirit of God lives within us. The same Spirit which rose Christ Jesus from the grave lives within you. The same Spirit who spun the world and the universe into, in, into existence. You may not feel it, it may not give you goosebumps and all those things, but he lives within you. Those times when, you know, you, you have a choice, you, you, you can do something which you know you should not be doing. And you have that voice, don't do it. You have that conviction, mm, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have acted in that way. <laughs> That's the spirit of God. That still, small voice telling you, yeah, do that. No, don't do that. And he lives within all of us. It's a matter of whether we choose to listen to him or not. Some of us like to kick and scream at the Spirit of God because we don't want to do. It brings, he brings us out of our comfort zone. But it becomes the difference between... GCSE Christianity or A-level Christianity? Degree or masters? Wherever you're at. It's how deep you want to get into the Lord and how obedient you want to be. And so, the Spirit of God. Glory. Glory is this eternal thing which I believe we just can't totally comprehend. Jesus said, you know, 
Father, you know, give to me the glory which we had before the world began. You know, he's talking about something. You feel me? Glory. I hope you look at the word glory in a different light now. Because when Paul says to the praise of his glory, we need to big up God for his glory, what he has done. We really need to do that. You know, a little bit more. We remember this, the, 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 the story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Amen? Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he goes up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured. These guys get this glimpse of his glory. It's like they just get a glimpse. It's like his, his robes and everything is just radiating get this glimpse of who Je- you know who Jesus really is and that was he looked very different to the Jesus they went up the mountain with the Jesus they had been rolling with for three years they knew Jesus they they sat with him they ate with him they you know they fellowshiped with each other and they've gone up this mountain and they now they think whoa because they'd seen something they'd never, ever seen before. And this glory is something which Father says, you know what, that's my right, and I'm going to get it. You don't understand it, but I'm going to receive all the glory. So, he's going to receive all the glory, and the Spirit can help us to understand these things. And somewhere in the future, we will be able to totally understand God's glory. Because the scripture says that we shall see him as he is. We get to see Jesus as he is. Now again, if you can think back to, to Exodus, Moses, you know, he's speaking, he's, he's, he's fellowshipping with the Father, he's fellowshipping with God. And he says, show me your glory. <laughs> and God says, you know what? You can't see my glory, bruv. Because no man can see my glory and live. And so God sort of like hides him in the, the cliff of the rock and, and passes by and he says, look, you can, you can see the back half of me, but mm, you can't see my glory. But now, today, we're in this privileged position that somewhere in the future, we will be able to comprehend and see God in his glory. I think it's fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> you know, the deal we get, fantastic. And you know, the response we should have, just as, you know, I know I'm not doing it justice, but as I said, Paul is breaking out in praise here. And we should be like, praise the Lord for all that you've done. Wow, I can only praise your name. Give glory, whatever it means, you got it from my lips, you got it That's, that should be our attitude that should be the way we live our lives now, from the we moving on who first trusted of verse 12 Paul switches and brings the Gentiles into the interview, he says in him you Gentile believers, 
also trusted. You applied faith after you heard. So again, breaking it down, Paul is even praising God for the, the ministry of preaching, the evangelism. Preaching the gospel and highlighting the fact that they heard the gospel. And we know that faith comes by hearing and by hearing and by hearing and by hearing. Was that enough hearings? The word of God. You know, there's many times when we're not putting ourselves in the place where we're hearing the word of God. We can hear everything else. We can hear MTV, YouTube, you know, EastEnders, Corey, whatever it is. We can hear that stuff. But that's not building up faith because my Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God so if you live your life in Waterloo Road or Corrie or whatever it may be you're not being built up you're not edifying that inner person you're not doing it it comes by hearing the word of God so big, Paul is bigging up the preaching of the gospel the declaring of the gospel so that people can hear it. And as they hear it, they're convicted. They're challenged. They can make a decision to say, I accept that. Or, you know what? Mm, I reject that. I don't want to hear that. I choose not to believe that. People can make those choices. So, he says, after you heard the word of truth, which is the preaching of the gospel of your salvation. And again, because he mentions both groups here, Jews and Gentiles, because that's how people were distinguished in the ancient world. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Nothing else. Paul is basically saying here that there's only one way to come into relationship with Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles can only come into relationship with Christ by one way. Hearing the message, accepting it, receiving it, confessing with their mouth, Believing unto Jesus and walking it out. There's not a separate way for a Jew and then a separate way for a Gentile. It's the same way. The preaching of the gospel. The receiving of the gospel. Because it is only in Christ Jesus again that we can find salvation. And it says, in whom also, having believed, you were, past tense, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. See here, Paul is like coming to that climax, that crescendo of praise. Looking at all the Father has done and all that we have in the, in the Son, Paul very much just brings this third member of the Godhead into full focus. And again, who has very much just been the silent partner the silent one just going about doing his business and if you can think of how the first hand hearers of this gospel would have received this it is addressed to those in Ephesus 
you know, remember from the first week I said that they were, they were deep into occultic practices, into witchcraft. They had seen, you know, people try to exercise demons in Jesus' name and then the demons just came out and started ravishing them. They'd seen power. And now Paul is saying to these, these believers in Ephesus, he's saying, do you know what? You've been sealed with that power. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know, you have put your trust in him. You were sealed. They were marked by God. And again, this is a, a spiritual thing which happens when we come into saving faith in, in the Lord. You know, somehow the Holy Spirit just takes ownership over our lives. Somehow he places us within the body. Somehow we come out of Adam and then we transport it into Christ. We, we come out of one kingdom and we enter into another kingdom. By the Spirit of God. We were sealed. And it says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, it says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We are the children of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and, and verse 22 says, Who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We know in our hearts that we are the children of God. So again, if you could put your place, put yourself in the place of these first-hand hearers, that would have been very encouraging news. Very encouraging news to know that, you know, Uncle Jim Bob is not going to go and throw some curse on me now and it's going to have power because they've got the Holy Spirit. Who's more powerful than the Holy Spirit? And so it would have been encouraging to them. Now, the word seal is very important because, as I said before, it signifies ownership. I'm not going to go there, but in the book of Ezekiel, you know, there's a point where when the, when the Lord was going to place judgment, but he said, before, go out into the city and put a mark on all of those who a mind. And that's Ezekiel, in your own time you can read it, Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 4, and very interesting, just interesting, in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 4 again, there's a similar marking going on. You know, the Lord marking those who, who, are, who are His. Because when the Father looks down on planet Earth, He sees two people. Either those in Adam or those in Christ. And if you're in Christ, 
you can't physically see it, obviously, but you, are, you have been marked. Marked by the Holy Spirit of promise. And, you know, again, the first-hand hearers of this would have been able to relate to this because Ephesus, going back to the first study, it was an important trading route. It was a shipping port. And when, when cargo would have come and it would have gone to all different parts of the world... You know, in order for me to know, you know, that my cargo is going to reach its destination, I would have to mark it. I'd have to seal it with my personal seal so that I know that when it got to Constantinople, first word that came into my head, um, I know that whoever's going to receive it would know it's my seal. Do you get the point? It was sealed, a personal mark. And the word seal, it also signifies security, authenticity. It signifies a completed transaction. And it signifies authority. All of these things. And in the ancient world, you know, seals were used by kings and by nobles. Now, many of us have seen those old films when, you know, when somebody has a document and they, they wrap it up and then the king, you know, they get that wax and the king gets his, his, his ring and he goes, and he seals it. Now, that's the imagery you have to have here now. It's being sealed. Yeah? And we have those, those pictures in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 1, Esther um, chapter 8 and verse 8 in Jeremiah 32, 44. So if you're taking notes, there's some verses just to look at. Sealing. And, again, this was usually done by heating wax and then sealing the document. And the seal, once something was sealed, it can only be broken by the intended recipient or someone, you know, with equal or greater authority. And we have this example in Daniel um, chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but in Daniel chapter 6, we have the situation where Daniel was told not to pray. So guess what Daniel did? Prayed anyway. And because he prayed anyway, they threw him into the lion's den. And Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king at the time, he didn't really want to put Daniel into the lion's den because he liked Daniel. But you know what? That was the law. And we have to, we have to work towards the law. And so they put him into the lion's den and they, they close up, they secure the lion's den and it says, this, and the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Do you think anybody else could come up and just break that seal and just say, oh no, the king's, the king's a joke and let's just get Daniel. No. <laughs> They couldn't play with that. It was sealed. And we know the story because someone with greater authority was able to protect Daniel in that life. After the crucifixion, let's bring it a little bit, you know, for the cross. Pilate, he ordered that the tomb of Christ be sealed. And what he was basically saying there was that no one, there's no one out there greater than the power of Rome. 
So anyone who thinks they're better than Rome, come and break the seal. And it says that they sealed it and they set a guard over it. But again, we see that someone greater than the power of Rome came and broke that seal and rolled that stone away. Amen. Hallelujah. In Revelation 5, and, it's, and this is beautiful because, you know, when you, when you start reading Revelation and, and you start getting in the picture, you start trying to imagine it. We have this scene in heaven and you've got this scroll. And the scroll has seven seals. And, it, and, and the cry goes out, who is worthy to break the seals? Who is worthy? And it was like, and it was, it was like, oh, oh, no, no one's worthy. <laughs> Hallelujah. But Jesus, the Lamb of God. Hallelujah. Get excited up here now was found worthy to break the seals and open up the scroll because he had equal authority to the Father. The Father set those seals in like, no one apart from me, God the Father, can break these seals. But Jesus, the only person in eternity, humanity, whatever T you can add on to that, History. Gamma, how am I doing? All right. It's like the angel went out. It looked over the, the universe. It's looking throughout history, eternity. Who, who's worthy? Who's worthy? You're feeling it? No one's worthy apart from Jesus. And he breaks the seals and we're heavy. Heavy. Paul's saying, he's breaking out, he's saying, do you know what? You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He sealed you. He authenticates you. You know, in him, you have this completed transaction. In him, because you have been sealed, you have authority. It's beautiful what Paul is, he said, he, he just gets a glimpse of it and he's breaking out. And I'm like, yo, I hear you, Paul. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Of promise, what does that mean? The Lord Jesus, you know, he said to the disciples, you know, go to Jerusalem, tarry there. And, and wait to receive power from on high. Wait to receive the promise of the Father. Now, if Jesus didn't do what he had done, he, he was not crucified, he was not resurrected, he was not glorified, then we could not enjoy the benefits of the promise of the Holy Spirit. But he has done that. And so now we're in this privileged position of being able to receive the promise of the Father. And we've been sealed and we have been given this guarantee. Verse 4 says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? 
God the Father has not only sealed us, but he has also given us a guarantee. And, again, God being God, perhaps he did this knowing that we as people, we're, we're guarantee oriented. You buy a nice flat screen TV, you want a guarantee. You buy a new fridge, freezer, you want a guarantee. How long does the guarantee last? You're looking for that guarantee. And if anything breaks down, if anything goes wrong, you're drawing for that guarantee because you're going back to Curry's or, or Comment or wherever. You're going back there and say, here's my guarantee. The thing doesn't work. We're guarantee orientated. We want security. Somehow we want this security to know that if I purchase something, it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, I know my rights. I'm getting a refund. Or I want a replacement. Can I get a witness? That wasn't a good witness. <laughs> we want guarantees in life. We want security in life. You know, even in marriage, you know, we... We, we make vows to each other because we want that security in each other. We want to know that, you know, you're going to be for me and I'm going to be for you and there's not going to be anybody else. And I'm going to love you for richer, for poorer and everything else. We want that security so that we don't have to worry about what our partner's doing when they're not around us because we have that security in them. We want that security. We look for it in every area of our lives. We want security. And God knowing that, he says here, do you know what? I've given you the guarantee. I've given you a down payment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So you know that what I say, I'm able to perform. This isn't no pie in the sky, kind of like spiritual talk I'm talking about here. This is reality. What God says, he's able to perform. And that's exactly what the Greek word Arabon, which means down payment, a guarantee. But, not only that, it may sound a bit cool, but this Greek word, Arabon, also has another meaning. And this Greek word is still is used in modern Greek today. And it actually means engagement thing. You make me go, wow. Right. Guarantee. It means engagement ring. So if one Greek person was getting engaged to another Greek person, you know, the, the, wet, the engagement ring would be an arable. It's a guarantee. It's like saying, I'm committed. I'm giving a down payment to say that this person I will marry. You know, if if somebody says I'm going to get engaged to someone, you're looking for a ring. You're looking for that sign, that that kind of security here. No ring. If somebody says I want I'm engaged, and you say, Oh, where's the ring? It's the first thing you say, like, where's the ring? There's no ring. You sure you're engaged? See, the ring signifies something. It's like a down payment to say, I'm engaged, 
and then somewhere along the line I'm going to get the full thing. And that's exactly what the Lord is trying to communicate to us here. He's saying, look, I'm giving you a down payment. It's like an engagement ring. I'm committed to you. And I'm committed to you. And at some point in the future, this thing's going to become solidified. The marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll be one with him. It's going to be beautiful. Now, engagement ring. I think that's really corny, but I think it's lovely. Because it's true. So, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. We've been given a guarantee. We've been given this down payment. We have the picture in our minds of an engagement ring. And, positionally, it's all true. It's all yes and amen. But this is the whole point of Ephesians to a degree. And it's the whole point of the New Testament, really. It's knowing your position and knowing how to work it out experientially. And whether you are really good at working it out or really terrible at working it out, ultimately, God is going to bring you to that place where you're in right relationship with him and that you're going to receive all the full inheritance. So it's not an excuse to say, well, I'm, I'm just so weak and I just can't do it. Uh, you know, and so the Lord's going to work. It's not an excuse to do that. You know, we always try to achieve and aim for... Jesus says, be holy for I am holy. So the, the goal is holiness. That's what we're aiming for. Holiness. And so he has given us his spirit. Positionally it's true and we need to start working it out through our experiences. He's given us this guarantee that the redemption of the full purchased possession, the full purchased possession, ultimately we will be of Christ when he sums all things up in the, in, the, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, we will be with him. And in the meantime, beloved, know that you have the Holy Spirit living within you. He lives within you to give us joy, peace, strength, wisdom, knowledge, endurance, comfort, he gives us the gifts, discernment, healing. Just think of them. He is there to provide us with these things. He, he, by the counsel of his own will, will lead us into difficult situations in order to fulfill what he desires within our lives. We don't always understand why, and maybe this side of eternity, we will never understand why. But he is God. He is sovereign. He knows why. And so, the Apostle Paul, he just praises God. He blesses God. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Similar language. Who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Therefore, 
let us hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And another verse, Romans 4.21, and being fully convinced that what he has promised, he is able to perform. Amen. Amen.